Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a microcollege in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week on the podcast, we have two lovely people from our local community, um, one of whom, one of my, uh, part of my uh, intellectual parentage, one of my teachers, um, beloved member of our community, Eddie Nix. Welcome, Eddie. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> Eddie is uh, the proprietor of Driftless Books and Music, and he was one of the founding teachers of the Youth Initiative High School when I was back when I, when I was a student. Um, in fact, person who taught me about the Transcendentalists, <laughs> among many other things, was the theater director, created the theater program, um, and taught many of the subjects. And uh, yeah, is, is is also one of the one of the founders of the of the radio station here too, or was a long time. I don't know if you're still involved with it, but uh, long time on, on the, the board. Yep. yep. Um, our other guest here is Rose Bruce. Welcome, Rose. Thank you. Rose grew up around here and. Uh, uh, has done a little work with with the college, and um, and also is a, is a graduate of Warren Wilson College, which I'd love to talk a little bit about as well. Sure. Another interesting college uh, out there in the in the higher education universe. Um, but all of that we'll get to. Um, but the, really, the, the reason that we have Eddie and Rose on the show here today is because we're staging a they are staging a, a really fascinating event in collaboration with Thoreau College, which is the Bardathon. So Eddie, do you want to say what is the Bardathon? Well, in a nutshell, the Bardathon is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day um, reading of the complete works of William Shakespeare. And it'll take place at the Commons, which is our community arts center here in Viroqua. And, yeah, every day, um, 4, 8, 12, 4, 8, 12, 4, 8, 12. We have four hours per uh, play, and we're going to get through all 39 plays and the sonnets and the poems. I think maybe one apocryphal play, but yeah, I was going to ask about that. <laughs> um, so we'll get to to why why someone would do that and uh, why and, and what that means. Um, but first, um, listeners to the podcast will know that um, we always begin with a biographical question. So, Eddie Rose, um, if you could reflect back back to when you were eighteen to twenty years old, where were you? Who were you with? What were you doing, and and what was what was standing out as as the big influences on your life during that period? Rose, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. Um, not quite as long ago for me as for Eddie. <laughs> uh, and I I was here in Viroqua, and I was just graduating from the Laurel High School. It's a little charter school here in Viroqua, and Eddie actually was um, a teacher for me there as well. Uh, doing some Shakespeare stuff in Bardathon. Uh, but when I turned 18, I graduated, and let's see, I guess uh, the first thing I did was to go to Alaska to do Shakespeare <laughs> <laughs> um, with some folks up at the Fairbanks Shakespeare Theater, and we met them through Bardathon. Um, Eddie, Eddie and I and our friend Ian Tully, we, we created a Shakespeare class at Laurel, and... Um, and then we saw in the paper this Bardathon was happening in La Crosse, and we, we went up there to check it out. And 
um, read Shakespeare deep into the night and uh, met met Bruce Rogers of the Fairbanks Shakespeare Theater. And Bruce said, Rose, why don't you come to Alaska? We'll do some Shakespeare. And so I said, okay. <laughs> and I went. <laughs> um, and Ian and I went up there. And uh, that summer I played um, Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. And and then uh, that fall, I headed off to Warren Wilson College, and there I studied forestry and agriculture and um, worked there on the vegetable farm and doing their beekeeping for four years. Um, and then, yeah, stayed in North Carolina. I guess we're just doing 18 to 20. So, yeah. In- but could you say a bit more about Warren Wilson? Because I think one of the reasons that a person might listen to microcolleges is to hear about interesting colleges. And my- Warren Wilson certainly is up there, and people sure. should know about it. Yeah, absolutely. I guess one of my, besides Shakespeare, one of my other loves um, as a teenager was agriculture, having grown up on a vegetable farm here outside of Viroqua. And um, when I turned 18, I declared that I didn't want to go to college unless I could continue growing my own food. <laughs> and so that's how I found Warren Wilson. I had um, kind of done some research about college farms, and Warren Wilson stood out as as a, as a farm that um, was exemplary. Uh, and so I went down there. I hadn't visited at all. I just drove down for the first day of school. And um, on in the first week, I was already volunteering on the farm and trying to show them that I was interested in becoming part of the crew down there. And, and yeah, Warren Wilson is a, is a liberal arts college, but it's also a, works, a work college. Um, and... And so they they have the the triad model, which is um, academics and work and community service. And so as a student there, you're completely wrapped up in not only your studies, but also being engaged in the campus community through work and also through the wider uh, to the wider community through community service projects. Um, And the work program is really cool. It's like, you know, every student has a job there and and my job at first was in the cafeteria at the school so I was using a lot of the produce from the farm and you know you would walk around campus and your peers were mowing the lawn and cleaning the bathroom and making your lunch and you know dreaming up the next student activity and so it was just kind of all run by the students and that was a really really enriching part of my time there um yeah, yeah, people should know that the Warren Wilson campus is one of the truly most beautiful campuses anywhere. I yes, it is so beautiful. It's 1,100 acres, and I think 600 acres of that is forest, and that was part of my uh, decision-making process in choosing to study forestry was in my forestry program. It was just, you know, let's go talk about the woods outside, in the woods, you know, walking <laughs> around there, and and uh, so it was very um, experiential that way, and and you know, I also was studying agriculture, and so I was down on the farm doing the work and seeing seeing what we were talking about in the classroom in action outside. And you know, you would pause halfway through your lesson. Everybody go outside. We're all herding the cattle. Everybody in the school <laughs> is gonna like stand by the road and you know run the cattle down the the road and stop all the traffic. And you know, so it was a very hands-on and experiential way to learn those subjects. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I just have the impression of the first time I drove in, into the Warren Wilson campus there with a group of youth initiative students, 
on a tour. It was evening. It was like the lights were coming on. It was just this is the Ewok village, right? Out of out of Star Wars, <laughs> right? It was it was it was very magical. So yeah, it is cool. truly a beautiful place and filled with many wonderful people. Great, excellent, Eddie. Where were you? Well, uh, to the best of my recollection, <laughs> um, no. When I was seventeen, I went to uh, in my senior year. Uh, it went to South Africa. This is nineteen eighty six. You can imagine that um, full on apartheid. Um, Mandela's in prison, uh, and uh, I, I found an exchange student program through the Rotary Club. And my motivation for going—I was pretty naive, you know, seventeen-year-old um, kid from Wisconsin. And uh, my main motivation in going there was to find a country that uh, spoke English because I was somehow lazy enough at that point in my life where I didn't want to learn a foreign language, which seems stupid now, um, and as far away from Wisconsin as possible. And South Africa came up and they were like, yeah, no one wants to go there. You know, that's easy. <laughs> so ended up, um, you know, having a real coming of age year in my senior year of high school. Uh, went to three different high schools there, stayed with four different families, ended up uh, working in a bar at the end, um, and just had a full experience from hitchhiking into townships to, um, you know, doing theater down there with people. Um, it was just an excellent time. And when I got back, um, I had a friend uh, who that summer, uh, when I uh, arrived back, uh, told me he was going out to Los Angeles. And I thought, well, I, I had this acting bug. Uh, the theater bug, and I thought, okay, I'll go out to Los Angeles with you, see if it works. So we drove out and um, ended up staying there about three years and doing the theater thing, doing the group living thing, doing the intentional community thing, uh, and ended up, you know, doing enough theater and and uh, film and things where I kind of got that out of my system at least in that sense and mm -hmm. the same thing with being in a city like just overdosing on a city and realizing that ah, I think I want to find something different uh, it wasn't really the the most comfortable uh, idea to spend the rest of my life in a large city so I'm grateful in that sense in that I was able to realize that uh, I think I'd be happier in a rural situation and uh yeah, I ended up coming back and tried to go to college uh, up at the University of Minnesota, and um, I got my first student loan check and went to my first class, which was Psychology 101 with something like a 1,000 kids. <laughs> and this instructor said, okay, we're going to show these films from the 70s, and here's the date of the test, and here's the lecture notes. And, you know, the next day there was half the kids there, and I looked at this check and I thought, I don't want to do this. This is this is this is not the path. Uh, getting into debt so soon, and I didn't feel like I was ready for it either. Um, and I felt like I wanted to, you know, have my education be uh, experiential instead of, um, you know, so systematic. So I kind of made a vow to read a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, have you delivered on that vow! <laughs> 
Yeah, so for folks, you know, who have the pleasure of knowing Eddie, he's definitely one of the the most uh, book learned person that you might ever meet um, without having gone to college, completed college. <laughs> um, and in fact, is is uh, yeah the the reason that we have an incredible amount of books here in Viroqua. So, among the other interesting things you've done, you've you've created a truly magnificent used bookstore here. Can you talk about what your your enterprise? Um, yeah, so it's about 19 years old now, the bookstore, and it's in a 20,000-foot um, uh, old tobacco warehouse, a big brick, you know, whale of a building, uh, which had been totally empty when uh, I got the building. And over the last 18 years, we've somehow filled it with, you know, probably close to a million books, if not more. Um, there's other buildings full of books. We just bought <laughs> another building downtown and started a... Um, a metaphysics and, and radical politics store and homesteading, and then another little shop um, that sells science fiction and fantasy. So the idea is to create a, a book village. Um, and I've tried to be open to everyone about this, you know, my <laughs> grand plan. Uh, you know, it's not a secret agenda. Right. A place <laughs> where, you know, this because so many people come to Viroqua for this bookstore because it's just a unique thing. There's weird art all around and for years and years, we had lots and lots of music concerts, which was which was just amazing um, because all these bands started, you know, finding us um, as they're touring through the Midwest. And you know, if you ever think about being in a band, you're basically doing a you know east to west coast tour, and you get to the Midwest and you got a show in Chicago if you're lucky, and maybe the next weekend you got a show in Minneapolis if you're lucky, and you got this week in between. So we were sort of the perfect layover spot for a lot of these bands. And, you know, we were just so lucky to have some amazing musicians come through um, to the point now we don't do many shows uh, right now since COVID happened, um, but we still get, you know, three or four every couple days of inquiries from, from really? different bands, you know, hey, we heard about this place, we really want to play there. And, um, so it was a beautiful sort of listening room where we could fit uh, up to 100 people. But, um, you know, most of the shows were, were pretty small and intimate, you know, 30 to 50 people. And uh, we heard over and over again from the from the bands that, um, you know, and these are bands who maybe have played thousands of shows across the country. They were like, this is one of our favorite shows. People were so intent and listening <laughs> and, and so present and... Um, you know, and just to play in an odd space like that, uh, the books create this just beautiful resonance. And, uh, yeah, so the bookstore is, um, you know, sort of my labor of love for the rest of my life. And uh, it's, it's, it's amazing uh, how few of these kind of places are left big used bookstores uh, and how hard it would be to redo it in the city, any city. So we're really lucky to have this sort of beautiful community out here to to do that in. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate having you on to, to just describe what you do there with, with the bookstore and, and with the music and then also about the, the Shakespeare. Um, because I think as I've gone out and, and tried to explain Thoreau College to people, you know, especially outside of the Midwest, they don't have a concept of Viroqua. They don't have a concept of the Driftless region. They definitely don't. They don't have a concept of Wisconsin. <laughs> or if they do, it's 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 flat and boring, right? So um, I think it's important for people to understand we do have um, just an, a very rich culture here in our town, and and uh, and you all are you know, you're a big part of that with making it happen. So um, thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so 
let's talk about Shakespeare. Rose, you know, so you went out of high school, you said, you know, some people go to Alaska to work in the fishery, to work in the oil fields, to go out in the woods. You went to participate in a Shakespeare festival. What is it about Shakespeare that would cause you to do that and, and also to stage a week-long reading of all the works of, of William Shakespeare? That's a great question. I think a lot of the time when people ask about Bardathon, their their first question is, what in the world would compel you to do that? Um, <laughs> they say, that's crazy. And I'm like, yes, it is. And it's the best breed of crazy. Um, but my own background with Shakespeare is that I started doing Shakespeare in Madison when I was six years old. I was in Richard II and um, with the young Shakespeare players there. And I really fell in love with it as a little kid, as um, kind of a second language in a way. And it, there's just this music to to the poetry that that really speaks to me. And um, I just love iambic pentameter. To me, it's like it's a it's a heartbeat. You know, it's da 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 da, and it just makes me feel alive. I just love it. And um, I think, you know, William Shakespeare is not the only one to use iambic pentameter, of course, but. But uh, he just sets up, sets up the the archetypes of what it is to be human in these, in these uh, ways that that are just so beautiful and um, and kind of help us all to relate to each other and to the world around us and um, and so I I did Shakespeare in Madison as a little kid and then, gosh I just I uh, kept reading it as I grew up and then. Um, when, when my family moved back here and I was going to high school, you know, at Laurel, which is very self-directive um, education, much like Youth Initiative, um, but, you know, you get to create your own curriculum a lot of the time, and so I wanted to study Shakespeare, and um, Eddie came out of the woodwork, and uh, <laughs> I guess that's kind of when I met Eddie, and we, had, we designed this course together um, and we talked about about the works, and we read a lot of it, and um, we questioned a lot of it, and uh, and yeah, and then then we went up to Lacrosse to do that first Bardathon, and and then I just went up to Alaska, and it was just one of the best adventures of my life to be to be there in Fairbanks, the golden heart of Alaska, in the woods, and they they're doing these Shakespeare plays like all outside, which is where Shakespeare is meant to be done. And, um, you know, you're getting eaten by mosquitoes and you're getting rained on. And, you know, I'll never forget playing Juliet dead on the stage and I'm supposed to be, you know, dead, but there's like mosquitoes biting me and I'm so cold that my body is shaking. And, I, and I'm just like, it's the rigor mortis, you know, as I'm just laying there shaking in the, in the Alaskan evening. Um, and but it just you know makes makes me feel alive, <laughs> and uh, and even when you're like, supposed to be dead. Yeah, yeah, even when I'm supposed to be dead, and there's just this relationship too, like when you do outdoor theater, especially with the audience, where you know it is raining, but but they pull out their umbrella and they're still sitting there, and um, and there's just this solidarity where where it's just this mutually beneficial kind of conversation that is happening and. Um, and yeah, it just you know, it's it's beautiful. <laughs> Eddie, you, you know, long before conspiracy theories were cool <laughs> or dangerous, whatever, you you introduced me and I think many other people in this town to to one of the classics, 
which is the question of who really wrote the works of William Shakespeare. How did you get interested in that topic? So it's interesting. Um, you know, I had done theater when I was a kid, and uh, at one point there was some Shakespeare in one of the plays. This is in La Crosse, Wisconsin. You know, maybe 13, and I kind of heard it, and I'm like, hmm, there's something about this language. And whenever I'd read the language, I, I felt akin to it. I felt like this was some sort of magic language where if you could just figure out how to read it right, it would make sense. And then it really did start making sense. Um, I remember during the time when we started the high school uh, and I was doing the theater, um, of course, it's a Waldorf-based high school. So the natural thing would be to do Shakespeare. And so every year the parents would corner me in the hallways and say, why don't you do some Shakespeare? And I was like, no, I want to do Brecht. I want to do Faust. I want to do Camus. You know, let's write a play about Emma Goldman. And and we did all those things, and they were amazing. And I just felt Shakespeare was so overdone that it didn't interest me with all this amazing other material to work with. And plus, when I when I really just, you know thought about it, um, why aren't I? Why don't I want to do Shakespeare? One of the things that really intrigues me about doing theater is learning about the author. So important. So when I when we did Brecht that year, I just dove into biographies of him, and he was amazing. And and who's Camus? And who's Goethe? And these characters were just so fascinating historically and and artistically. And then I, I remember reading a biography of Shakespeare. And I was, I was struck, as many people are, that as Mark Twain kind of described it, there's a, a few bones of a brontosaurus <laughs> with a million pounds of pastor of Paris over it. You know, it, it's like there's, there's two or three, maybe ten facts that we know about this guy. Uh, and it just, he wasn't interesting. I mean, the period was fascinating. But so so something was in my head like, hmm, something's wrong here. And then after we started the bookstore, um, uh, I bought a collection from uh, a, a professor named uh, Dougley, Douglas Emery Wilson, who uh, happened to be the father of Peter Lamborn Wilson, a.k.a. Uh, Hakeem Bey, who's a, a philosopher, uh, who died recently last year, but his father had died at that point, and um, and we went down to gather the books uh, from his house, and this was in Georgia, and we find out that like half of the books, maybe three thousand, were all about Shakespeare, and this guy was like hardcore geeky, like he had one of those machines, and I can't remember what it's called, but a computer, Eddie. No. <laughs> Where you, no, right in between there, where you have two copies of a text of a book, like a first folio, and you put them in, and then you look into these goggles, and you can see both texts, and you can look for the most minute sort of printing errors, or right to compare two texts, and that's what he did with with um, with Shakespeare and first folios, and this guy was like professor at Harvard and Emory University, just some big universities, and he was actually the the head editor of the complete works of Emerson. Um, <laughs> I think I have a number of his books in my personal library. I bet you Emerson do. And, Thoreau. <laughs> and so I got this Shakespeare collection and I thought, hmm, isn't that interesting? And in each book, 
it was like he had taken such meticulous notes and made such crazy corrections where he would correct these these major major Shakespeare scholars on well actually the spelling in that folio or that quarto version of that play was actually with an e and you know it, it was amazing so I thought oh I I've inherited this collection um I have to start reading it and I started reading through it but once again it was it was that sort of textural criticism the new bibliography you know this this sort of ultimate geeking out on the text and of course the text is fascinating is what we're here talking about but I found very little about the man in these thousands of Shakespeare books and I thought hmm and at that point um I thought well here's this great collection where can we try to sell these books? There must be some Shakespeare conference somewhere in the country that would allow me to to come and set up and sell these these Shakespeare books. So I called around and emailed to a bunch of Shakespeare conferences, and they were like, nah, nah, mm-mm. Nah, we've never done that before. And then I found one, which was called the, the Shakespeare Oxford uh, Conference, which was about the authorship question. And really to that point, I mean, I had I had looked into the authorship question back when I was really into like metaphysics and, you know, looking at weird spirituality and ooh, Francis Bacon and Freemasons. And then you got you get to the end of that road and it all sort of devolves into this cipher cryptogram type stuff and then it's seances and it's like, uh, you know, where <laughs> Bacon doesn't really seem to be the guy and I kinda gave up. But then at that point when this authorship conference said we'd love to have you come out and sell your books I thought great so we packed up the the truck and we drove up to Ann Arbor Michigan and set them all up and it was this conference of maybe a hundred people and they were all talking about who wrote Shakespeare and they loved the books and they were so happy to see someone young and um, and interested in this this idea and I just became completely hooked. I fell down the rabbit hole. I spent the next, you know, whatever, 25 years, um, or the next, I guess it would be 18 years, um, looking into this issue and going back to these conferences every year. Um, and Rose went um, one year, I know, and, and, and actually presented. Four, four years, I think. Well, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one year she presented to this, In I think you were still only, what, 16 or 17. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. And she's doing, you know, like uh, esoteric uh, Shakespeare and how John Dee and, you know, all the crazy <laughs> things fit into the authorship question. So that's that That was the beginning of it. Uh, and I really sort of have, have loved it as a, I guess you'd call it a safe conspiracy. You know, the CIA is not going to come after you for getting into it and people aren't going to look at you like you're totally crazy. Um, and it was a thing that most people just honestly had never thought about, even though this guy is ubiquitous. Everybody knows who Shakespeare is. And you say, well, tell me something about him. They're like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so that was that was my introduction to it. <laughs> so uh, my impression is that this is this is a pathway, actually, for you to actually get interested in Shakespeare, right, in a way that you weren't before. Yeah, for sure, because... Uh, it, so the, the the theory that I'm kind of attached to is there's this character named the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, uh, born 1550, dies 1604, um, right after the Queen dies, the year after Elizabeth. Um, and so 
when you look at the works, the plays, through the lens of knowing about his life and operation and the Shakespeare enterprise, which I kind of call it because I think that he was behind not only Shakespeare, but probably hundreds of other Elizabethan writings, whether it was Arthur Golding's translation of Ovid's Metamorphosis when he was 14 years old, which, you know... Uh, Rose is presenting at that conference. It's well, you know, and, and <laughs> it's, it, it suddenly starts to make sense. Who's the most influential person to, the, to Shakespeare? Ovid. You know, the metamorphosis is this massive, you know, there's so much pulled from it. And then you look at that version of the metamorphosis and you're like, okay, this kind of sounds like a 14-year-old kid who knows way too much Latin and is trying to make the English language into a world renaissance language. And I think that's what, what Oxford's um, goal was, to, to elevate the English language, which was pretty much spoken by nobody outside of England, into a world-class language by developing it. And I, th I think he did it. Um, so when you look at the w works through this lens of knowing this guy's life, things just start popping out. You start seeing contemporary references. You start seeing personal, you know, sort of things that, oh, maybe, you know, that was about his relationship with this person. And it's a fascinating way to look at Elizabethan history, which I've become fascinated with, you know. So, I mean, that is my, that is my um, pleasure reading <laughs> for many, many years is, is books on Elizabethan history. And uh, to me, it really brought the works alive, and it gave it a place where it made sense in the bigger picture. Whereas if you just sort of look at the English Renaissance and you go... You know, well, here's this Shakespeare thing, uh, but it doesn't really relate. We can't find any relations to anything else that's happening. Uh, it, it once again just doesn't make sense. So, yeah, to me, it 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 helped clarify, you know, and it helped bring the works to life. Hmm. It's fascinating. I mean, it's been often observed, like how much of our modern English language. Can be traced back to particular passages in the in the plays of William Shakespeare, um, and so the idea that that is Shakespeare, whoever wrote the plays of Shakespeare, was in some sense doing that on purpose. They were they were they were wanting to create a, a a powerful language that could be have a world status. And this was a new art at that point. Honestly, you know, taking at least for English, I mean, theater wasn't a new art, but I think what Shakespeare did with it was completely new and 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 hasn't been matched since. So I was talking about Arthur Golding. Let me just finish that. Um, Arthur Golding was this, you know, Calvinist. You know, he was like translating the, the works of Calvin. That's his life work. He was a very conservative guy. And then just out of the blue, he sort of decides to translate the most erotic, you know, sexually explicit, you know, work ever and make it sound like, uh, you know, a 14-year-old kid wrote it. I mean, it's still, I mean, Ezra Pound said that version is the most beautiful book written in the English language. Mm. So there's something to it, but it's I another... I believe Arthur Golding was also Oxford's uncle. Well, yeah, and he was his tutor, so he was living with him wow. when he was 14, and he had, you know, that was what Golding taught him. It's like, here's the Latin classics, you know, let's let's do this. And so it it makes total sense. And then... 
if you go, okay, so if he did that at 14, you know, the Shakespeare stuff doesn't show up for another 30 years almost in terms of when it was published. Um, you can you can really start looking at a lot of these pieces that are either pseudonymous or anonymous or um, alonyms, which are living people that you happen to adopt their name just for this piece. Mm -hmm. They might be writers. Uh, and there's people who have done that work now and it's it's actually quite mind-blowing um when you you know because i think if you get shakespeare wrong you get the english renaissance wrong um and and you know it's 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 a big thing but th i think the thing that fascinates me most most about the authorship thing is that it's such a heretical thing only within this tiny bit of people called academia, English professors who are tenured, right? It is like, there's nothing else like it. That is like, you cannot discuss this. You cannot publish on this. You cannot get your PhD in this. Like, where else does this happen, <laughs> right? Uh, so I think that's another thing that really fascinates me is is just the fact that what it's... What is a taboo? Yeah. Yeah, powerful taboo. I thought of that when you were talking about how safe the conspiracy theory is, and I was thinking, well, not so much, because, you know, it's so contentious, and not only amongst English professors, but also amongst, you know, people who are involved in the theater. I have a very distinct memory. I mentioned that I was doing Shakespeare in Madison um, when I was six, and, you know, I, w I was so in love with it, and I remember finding this newspaper article about who wrote Shakespeare, and this one was about uh, the theory that Queen Elizabeth wrote Shakespeare, because there's a lot of different theories about who wrote it. Um, and Eddie and I are pretty married to the Oxfordian theory. But um, this was one about Queen Elizabeth I. And I remember I cut it out of the newspaper, and I brought it to the director um, of the Shakespeare Company. And he <laughs> silently took me out into the hallway and gave me... He, he yelled at me. He gave me this very serious... <laughs> and you're six years six old. six years old. <laughs> and he said, never, never bring this up again. Like, this this is, like, only only crackpots think this, and this is, like, a, an insult to the great works of Shakespeare. And this is a guy who had, like, you know, recorded on tape a, a translation to modern our modern version of English, every word in the whole canon so that a six-year-old could understand it. You know, this is a guy that was totally immersed in, in the language and yet unwilling to discuss, um, you know, who could be behind it. And and I encountered that later, too, in, you know, in college with professors and, um, and just... All throughout, I, I lost friends in theater, you know. <laughs> I, when I was in wow. uh, Henry IV Part One, I remember bringing, like... I was very closeted about being an Oxfordian and because of this and um, and I remember finally like broaching the subject with a friend and giving them a volume to read about it um, and and uh, our friendship was never the same I kid you not he he uh, kind of wrote me off and um, and you know people just view it as disrespectful to the to the play itself which is so interesting right because you know, how we understand other works of literature is understanding the person that is behind it and what their life looked like and what their education was and, you know, what their hobbies were and all of this. And so it, it's such a interesting, like, knee-jerk reaction that, that people have to it. And I think it's partly because, you know, of the, the industry that is a Stratfordianism. Like, it's not only the academic 
you know, fraud that has happened around this man's life, but also, you know, there's this huge tourism industry in Stratford-upon-Avon that makes millions of dollars every year of people visiting it and, you know, tromping through his house, and here was his cup, and here was his, you know, pillow, and, you know, his here were his shoes bed. and his second best bed, one of the <laughs> only facts that actually remain. But, you know, all of this was created, like, you know, long time after this man lived, and is basically a, a money-making scheme that would dissolve if we knew the truth. Well, and it's also like quasi-religious, yeah. Which has. you know, you you have that sort of zealot reaction, um, even though you don't understand the argument per se. Like I've spent my life reading these. How dare you? You know, and and it does become kind of re- especially for the people who want to battle, like the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust folks. And, and, you know, they're bringing in a lot of money and they're spending a lot of money, like, going against us. It's pretty amazing when you start tracing, like, who are these people commenting on the Internet? Who are these people writing these books? Um, it all comes back to those guys. And God bless them. They're trying to do good work, you know. Um, but it, it, it has that sort of religious fundamentalism where I will not even discuss this. I, I don't want to read that book. No, I, I know. Uh, yeah, it is very much like they don't even want to have the conversation because they're too good They're too good for that. And, and it's kind of interesting because one of the things that is pointed out as problematic about the authorship question is that it's, it's pointed out as being elitist that, well, how come, a, you know, a person from a small town who doesn't have a grand education can't be a genius? Like, how come genius can't arise from, from poverty and um, ignorance, you know, and, and this, this, like, elitism that, that is surrounding the uh, Stratfordian theory is kind of very, um, a class very ironic yeah. in that way. It is, you know. Not only are are are, are we sort of derided by being elitist because we think only an earl could have written these things, but it it destroys this fundamental myth of both England and literature and sort of our culture that it's like Horatio Alger, you know, the little boy who you know has everything going against him, does the right thing and makes the right decision and turns out good, you know. And you never want to like, you know, mess with that myth because it's important. And and when it comes to Shakespeare, it's like, yeah, he he didn't need an education. He didn't need to know law. He didn't need to know hawking and how the court worked and Latin and, and Italian. And, you know, I mean, the amount of learning whoever wrote those works knew was like the pinnacle of education at that time. Uh, and the guy that they put forward you know, never taught his daughters to read. You know, we have nothing in his hand except for six signatures, which are all completely different on on court documents. Uh, and this will, which is like the most boring, sad excuse for writing, um, you know, written by a lawyer, but still his thoughts. Which also mentioned no books, no desk, no writing implements. No plays, no nothing. So... Now, some you know this guy existed. We're not saying he didn't exist, but the chances of that being the guy who wrote these works are pretty much zilch when you actually look at the evidence. So wherever you've got a taboo, you've got power. 
right? There's, there's, and, and some, you know, the, the real taboos, they go back to spiritual power, to really metaphysical kind of forces at work here. So, and it, it strikes me also that, you know, that, that will bring out fundamentalism, that bring about, you know, the kind of reaction that you've seen, but also that kind of power will get people to go and spend a week of 24 hours to read complete works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> right, right. So I just I want to I turn to the Bardathon for a moment here, and you you've done you've been involved with this in the past, and and maybe you can give us a portrait of of what that's like to have that great wave of language <laughs> wash over you for a whole week. Yeah, gosh, I think I mean you got to take it in shifts. I think the longest I ever stayed up was was uh, two days reading Shakespeare. And, and you know, I kind of think the longer that you stay up, the more magical it gets in a way. I mean, the words start to swim on the page a little bit, so it gets tricky, but but there's just this euphoria that, that happens when you just totally immerse yourself and you're with other people who are completely immersed. And, you know, sometimes you're just at the table. Other times you get up if you feel compelled to. Um, and and yeah, it just, uh, it's kind of puts you in like this alternate reality. Um, it's kind of like the best, I don't know if it's the book dust or what, but it's just the best <laughs> hallucinogen um, you can get. And yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you're just, it's collective storytelling, right? And that's what theater is, of course, but this comes without the performance anxiety and without the, you know, um, it, it, it just, it's so free-flowing, and I was just talking to Eddie about how, you know, it provides this opportunity to play any role, too. You know, I, you know I'm not going to be ever cast as Falstaff, probably, or, you know, Othello. You know, these are roles that, that aren't going to be given to me, but at the Bardathon, you can be whoever, <laughs> whoever you want to be. Um, so how how does it work practically? If a person you know wants to to come and participate in this, like what what do they do and and what is it like to what is it like? Yeah, so you know you walk in. Pe- people can show up any time, day or night, um, and or in person. Or we're gonna have a Zoom that's live, so you can tune in from afar. I think actually one of the Bardathons that we did back in the day, I tuned in from India. Um, actually, when I was 18, um, and read from there. And actually, that's great to have people around the world who are into it because, you know, you're doing it at all hours of the day. And so when it comes to 4 a.m. and someone calls in uh, and their time it's noon and they bring this new life of I'm awake um, to whatever <laughs> you're reading, uh, it's so wonderful. But, yeah, you, you walk in, um, you're, you get given a part, and you – change parts every scene or every act you know you're not just one one thing for the whole play and you also don't need to stay for a whole play whether you're dropping in for 30 minutes on your lunch break or whether you want to see how long you can um, prop open your eyelids with toothpicks (laughs) and um, keep reading it's it's just welcoming for everybody so you know it'll kind of look like we're gonna try to set up tables in in sort of a semblance of a circle in some way and we'll all have our big complete works of Shakespeare in front of us and and that actually gets kind of fascinating too because a lot of them are just like minutely different and so you know you can kind of start geeking out over that of like which translation or which version you know and which quartos and um 
Mm-hmm. And and you can also come in and just listen. Um, and you can check out the Zoom thing and just listen. So uh, that is another aspect of it. Um, sometimes just hearing the language without having to take the mental um, you know, strength of watching a play um, can give it a different thing. You know, for me, when I when I read this stuff, especially, I mean, when I read it during the Bardathon, uh, especially after a couple days of staying up way too late, etc., the text sort of just melds into you, and you, you become one with it. Uh, and that's what I'm going for. You know, I'm not doing this because I'm a masochist. I'm doing this because I want that, you know, semi-hallucinogenic, uh, you know, altered consciousness. The oceanic experience, right? <laughs> exactly. And plus, you know, we've all read Romeo and Juliet, and we've seen Hamlet, but, you know, when's the last time you saw Time of Athens or even read it or Pericles or some of these more obscure plays? Um, that's that's also fascinating. So, so yeah, the way it's set up, as I said, 4, 4 a.m., 8 a.m., noon, 4 p.m., 8 p.m., midnight, we start up different play. So if the play takes two and a half hours, then we got an hour and a half break, you know, and some of them we've added the sonnets afterwards or the poems, uh, yeah, so it's just um, it's a free-form thing. You know, at, at any given time, it might be th- three to ten people sitting around a table reading, and that's basically what it appears to be. <laughs> What's happening underneath is more magical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so having done this before, I mean, do you, and we had um, Willie Jones, who, who is uh, collaborated with Liam here on, on the Shakespeare Festival, um, and... Uh, Asked him what was what was your favorite play? If you, you know, what's the, what's the what's the one play that that person should see or should should be a part of? What would you guys have an answer to that question? Oh man, that's and does that's it can hard. happen at three in the morning? <laughs> I'd I'd say for me it's it's still Hamlet because I think not only is it just one of the quintessential plays and pieces of literature, but from the lens that I'm looking at it, it's the most autobiographical. Um, it's just blatantly in your face autobiographical and and I think that there's a lot every time I read it uh, or see it you know things pop out you know that I that I you know you can't I mean even if you've done this stuff all your life um, you're, you're always gonna find something fresh in it and that's I think to me the beauty of this work is that it's so complex and uh, that there's always something to to find in it yeah, and for me, I think my favorite play is King Lear. Mm. I love that play deeply. Um, but I also love Henry the Fourth, Part One, and it doesn't have a very catchy title um, because it implies the existence of other parts that you might have to be there for. But it's actually like one of the funniest plays, and I had the pleasure of being in it, and also had the pleasure of directing it um, down in North Carolina, and. It's hilarious. And, it's got uh, Falstaff. It's got Falstaff, and you know, it's got political intrigue, and it's got, it's got lots of jokes, and it's got it all. So that's definitely one of my favorite plays as well. I also love Richard II that I was in when I was six, partly just because it reminds me of that. Um, my mom always talks about how I was just like this six-year-old, and I was wearing you know adult clothing, and so I was so so um, into the language and so earnest in delivering it, but I looked like a clown. Uh, <laughs> but it, it really is what Eddie's saying about not having to do the work of watching a play and just immersing in the language um, is such a gift of Bardathon. And uh, I actually had the opportunity to go to the Globe 
when I was, um, I think, nine or ten years old, and I got to see Measure for Measure there, and um, I got this seat that was, like, right behind this big pillar, so I couldn't see the show, and, and you know, I was obsessed with Shakespeare, and, and um, I was with my mother, and she was kind of dismayed that, like, wow, we've come all this way, and Rose is obsessed with Shakespeare, and she can't see it, and she was apologizing to me, and I just said, I don't need to see it. I I can hear it. <laughs> and oh, that's how I still feel about Shakespeare is just like the music of the language. And in some ways it it brings out all of the things that you may not notice when you're when you're watching it on stage. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, just to throw in my reference, I recently um, the community seminar that we do through, through Thoreau College, we read Macbeth, mm. which um, I don't think I've ever read in a class or like seen on, on stage before. But wow, what a what a trippy and bizarre play that is. Oof, yeah, just the you know the, the the witches and just the the language of space. It is it is truly like psychedelic. <laughs> Well, and, you know, even the word Macbeth, you know, you're not supposed to say that in a theater, you know, right. because of the history of these weird things that have happened at various Macbeth performances. Uh, and I think since Shakespeare's kind of been performed for the last, you know, uh, however long it's been, 500 years or 400 years, um, there's so much history in the performance, like the, the the Shakespeare riots that happened in New York in the 1800s. Like, who knows about those? But there were actually riots because, you know, one guy was doing his version of Macbeth and the other guy was doing his version, and, and they were rivals. And the people, you know, um, so there's 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 a there's a lot of history and even the performance aspects. Like, I was showing these guys uh, this book that I just started. It's called Squeaking Cleopatras, and it's about the boy actors in in Elizabethan England. And if you didn't know, the all the women parts were played by young boys. You know, so thirteen, fourteen, fifteen year old boys would play these women parts, and it's it's fascinating to think about, especially um, with all of the in the comedies, all of the the cross dressing and things already going on in those in those plots. Yeah, I got to see um, some years ago Mark Rylance do Twelfth Night in in New York, and it was like he was playing a woman; he was doing the woman's part. It was just amazing to see. Like, not only is this like one of the greatest Shakespearean actors ever, but also an Oxfordian. You right, uh, <laughs> you know, as well as Sir Jacob uh, Derek Jacobi. Um, you know that, and you know if you look at the the amount of people or some of the more interesting people, uh, whether it's Walt Whitman or um, you know contemporarily we have musicians like Steve Earle or Anne Rice, the author. You know these are people who like went seriously down this rabbit hole of authorship. And I went to know about Anne Rice, but I, I ended up buying a book of of of. Um, one of these authorship books and it had a note in it signed Anne Rice saying this was the foundation for you know this research I did for some project that she never wrote about um, and then before she died I actually got to exchange a few emails with her and and she said <laughs> yeah it's been so long ago I'd feel bad I'd feel you know I don't think I'm up to it to do a an interview um, but she said yeah, yeah I was so super into it um, Found a, a, another book one time with Keanu Reeves' signature in it, one of the authorship books, and 
sort of tracked him down. You know, I was like, you really into this? And he was, so. Wow, I did not know that. So did you get both of those people to sign the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt? Uh, yeah, no, uh-uh. I don't know if they have. But there is the Decor- Declaration of Reasonable Doubt, which is if, if you think there's doubt, and it's really not about who you think wrote it. It's just I think there's enough doubt to look into this question. Um, there's been Supreme Court moot trials that have taken place over this issue where Justice <laughs> Stevens was one of the most, you know, prominent Oxfordians years ago. Um, yeah, so the the, the litany of, of characters. Uh, that, James that, Joyce, Sigmund Freud. Freud, definitely, yeah. Joyce, it's like a little unclear, but if you really dig into Ulysses... You can find it, you know, if you know what you're looking for. If you don't know what you're looking for, it's just like, oh, yeah, he's talking about Hamlet's grandfather, and it's really confusing, and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, fantastic. Um, so we're coming up to the top of the hour here. Just can you restate for, for, for anyone here, what, what are the, when is this starting, when is it ending, and how do you connect with it in person and on Zoom? It's starting at 8 a.m. on this coming Sunday, uh, the 22nd of January, um, here in Viroqua at 8 a.m. Wisconsin time. Um, and we will be kicking it off with – what play are we kicking it off with there, Eddie? Uh, the Two Gentlemen of Verona, I believe. And um, we're going to keep reading all the way all week until um, Saturday – at, at midnight. Oh, midnight right? we end. Yeah, yep. we will end then. <laughs> and there, there's a, a Facebook page, um, and the Zoom link is posted there. So to find the Facebook page, you could just search Bardathon probably, and and have it come up that way. Um, and yep. yeah, tune in from anywhere in the world, and we will be very happy to have you join the chorus of Bard lovers. And our secret goal is to have Thoreau College be the first college to offer a authorship question, um, you know, degree. Yeah. I mean, we've really just uh, we've just tickled the surface of the authorship question here, and there, and the rabbit hole really is extensive, and um, there's so much to say about it. We could we could fill a whole another podcast with just that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there was a, a couple years ago there was a uh, an article in the New York Times. Um, Mentioning several of the other micro colleges or what we call micro colleges that are our peers, um, we were not mentioned in there, but we could well have been. But the title of the of the um, article was "The Rise of the Anti College." So it seems like an anti college probably should have a degree in in the authorship question, exactly, or at least offer a class, right? right? And you'd probably be the first. You could probably get better press off of that. That's right. Than growing vegetables. Right. All publicity is good. Ve- yeah. Good publicity. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for, for bringing this, this unlikely thing about. Thank you all that you both do for our community, and thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jacob. Yeah, thank you, Jacob. It's a, it's a great project you're involved in, and I think this college has uh, huge potential in the future, and I wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you. <laughs>